watching from an athlete perspective where all of a sudden he gets it or she gets it. And then you see that just click and then it's like game time. You know, I think that's the biggest thing I get from an athlete is like learning, you know, all these things you see as a coach, right? Like this athlete should be able to do this or they should be able to hit these times or, or do this performance. But it's all nothing because it's just you or me talking here and we know the science of it and the method, but the athlete's the one who has to believe into it and believe in themselves, right? And it doesn't matter how much you tell them how great they are or whatever until they get it. And I think watching that process happen and how it happens differently with each athlete is, is probably the most exciting part of coaching. That's Terrence Mahan. And this is episode 60 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Welcome back to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week's conversation is with someone I've long respected and admired, Terrence Mahan, and it does not disappoint. For those of you who don't know, Terrence is one of the best middle and long distance running coaches in the world. He's currently the director and coach of the Mission Athletics Club in San Diego, which he co-founded last year with his wife, three-time Olympian Jen Rines. Terrence was previously the coach of the BAA High Performance Team in Boston. He was the distance coach for UK Athletics before that, and he was also the coach of the Mammoth Track Club from 2004 to 2013, where he guided Dina Castor to an American record in the marathon, Ryan Hall to his 59-43 American record in the half marathon, and he also developed eight Olympians during his tenure there. This was one of my favorite conversations. We talked about Terrence's career as both an athlete and a coach. I learned more about the Mission Athletics Club and what his objectives are with his new group. We discussed the trajectory of his coaching career from his humble beginnings, working with age group runners at a running shop in Pennsylvania to becoming one of the most highly sought after coaches in the entire world. Terrence told me about his coaching influences and mentors, including the legendary Joe Vigil. We got into the weeds of coaching, and there are a ton of great takeaways there, like the importance of really getting to know your athletes, being brutally honest with them, and being adaptable when it comes to setting goals. We talked about what he sees as his main responsibilities as a coach, how he keeps sharp and stays excited about the craft, what he learns from the athletes he works with, and a heck of a lot more. All right, I won't spoil the rest of it for you. Let's get right into it with Terrence Mahan. So it's like my dad will say more Mahan or, you know. Okay. Um, but mo- yeah, most people will say Mahon or Mahon. Okay. That was my whole like life growing up in, in college or high school. And- <laughs> well, I mean... My name has a lot of vowels to it. So Mario Fraioli, people like Fraioli, Fraloli, Fragioli. I mean, it's all over the place. Fragioli, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I remember a cross-country race in college. I I won and they called me up to, you know, to the podium or whatever. And somehow they they butchered the whole thing to, not even the first name and everything. It was Marlo Marlo (laughs) Fragioli. And that was my freshman year. And that stuck for the rest of college. And even my friends now, when... They see me, they're like, oh, it's Marlo Frenoli. It's funny how things stick. All right, cool. Well, we'll go in three, two, one. Terrence Mahon, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks, Mario. Appreciate you coming all the way up here to North County, San Diego, while I'm here for the Carlsbad 5000 this weekend. I imagine you'll have some athletes in the race. Yeah, I just have um, two people running, actually. not So not as many as kind of originally we were thinking. Uh, my wife, Jen Rines, is going to run in the Masters race. Uh, she, she won it last year. She had some fun, so she's going to come back and do that. And then I have one uh, female, Rocky Lambden, doing the uh, open women's race. Let's start with the group of athletes that you have here in San Diego now. It's called the Mission Athletics Club. When did you start the group or formally start the group? Because I know you left the BAA, I think it was end of 2017, to come back to California. Yeah, so... <clears throat> Yeah, my contract was up with the BAA end of 2017, so my wife and I decided we want to move kind of back to California, which is where I'm from originally, uh, and we wanted to move to San Diego, so we got kind of up and running down here in January of 2018, and kind of knew we wanted to put a club together, and just not exactly sure how that would be or how long it would take, uh, but kind of started, you know, the seeds with a couple athletes that I'd already been coaching, and then a couple new people I picked up once I moved out here. So then kind of formally we got set up uh, like 
around June. And then, you know, in terms of, you know, all the legalese and whatnot of getting the club set up was uh, in the fall of 2018. What was the attraction to San Diego? I know when you were coaching at Mammoth Track Club, you guys would come down here for some sea level training and you'd spend some time here. But what made you decide on San Diego as the base? Yeah, I mean, our, our original plan was we used to utilize the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista. And, and that was kind of my first experience with that uh, when we were in Mammoth. And then, you know, Jen and I just kind of loved it down here because of you know, not just because of the training center, but because of just the consistency of the weather, uh, the, for where we live and most people live, the ease of getting to an airport, you know, so much of that was easy, uh, really nice trails to run on. Like I'm someone who's always like been used to driving 10 or 15 minutes to go to a trail. And so the ability to have so many different types of surfaces and hills and whatnot. So for me, it was just that kind of combination of all those things made when we were leaving Boston, like thinking San Diego would be the best place to go. What is the mission behind Mission AC? Uh, in terms of the name? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when we looked at names, it's like we were very kind of anti, just kind of typical running club sort of name. And I wanted to have a, a bigger meaning to it than that. And 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 then, you know, looking at what we're going to do, we wanted to leave some, some doors open in terms of, uh, you know, what are we going to do with the group? And so for us coming up with something like the mission has more open avenues to it in terms of a business model, as opposed to, you know, San Diego elite or something like that. We were kind of very anti just being elite. Uh, and so for us, the concept of the mission reflects to every athlete, every runner, every person who's trying to get better is like, we can be on a mission, you know? So it's, you know, there's no specific intent, you know, in terms of, oh, it's religious or it's military or it's whatever. It's just, we all seem to have a mission in life in terms of trying to get better. And so for us, that seemed to resonate the most when we were trying to pick a name. And so while you have an elite team of racers, do you have plans to expand it beyond that? Uh, I think we do. I mean, my wife, Jen, is getting to that point in time, you know, where each year we think she's going to retire. She's what, 44? Yeah, 44. She turns 45 in July. Uh, And we keep thinking she's going to retire, but she kind of keeps racing. But we've we've thought of just more options of what does she want to do when she's done and and things like that. And and part of our... um, connection with Adidas, who's helped Jen and I for years is, is like possibly doing some things with Adidas with running groups in San Diego. And so, so having the openness to at least keep that as an option. What makes Mission AC different from some of the other groups that you've coached in recent years? Uh, let's see. I mean, it's, if we go back let's say when I first started coaching professionally, we were technically like still team running USA mm-hmm. and that kind of started. And I was one of the first athletes under that group when coach Joe V Hill and Bob Larson started there. Uh, and that was run by, you know, them, but mainly by the trade organization running USA. And then when I was coaching, you know, I decided to kind of take it over for full. I'm a little bit of a control freak that way. And I like kind of managing my own business. So I did that. And then when I left there, kind of ended that, handed over the reins to Dean and Andrew Caster to, for them to take it on. I went to the UK for a year, uh, worked under a federation and, you know, learned, okay, this is what working for a federation is about. And then, you know, went to the BAA, which is a similar type of you know, organizational structure where you're a piece of a bigger, bigger pie. Uh, so having gone through all those experiences, when we came down here, it's like, we wanted to start this model a, to go back to like, Hey, I like being my own boss and, and want to kind of be able to drive it the way I, I see fit, pick the athletes that I want to work with, uh, that want to work with me and, and be just have more kind of day to day control of that. And so our structure with that, um, you know, we, we have a loose support relationship with Adidas right now that maybe, you know, we'll grow deeper as we go, but it's, it's trying to balance the best of, of all the worlds in terms of getting support for the athletes, getting support for coaches like myself to, to be able to like mm-hmm. do this as a living. Uh, so it, it's, it's different in that it's quite open-ended at the moment, but, um, but I feel like I have a little more control of it. Where does that part of your personality come from that need to want to be in control? Um, I like to basically take ownership of 
of the successes and failures more than anything. So for me, the control part is to know if I did it I, and it was successful is because of the types of decisions I made. And if it doesn't work, then it's because of the types of decisions I made so that I can kind of sleep at night knowing, hey, this was, you know, good because I did made some of these right calls and know how to do that in the future, or it was bad because I didn't. Mm. So I, I don't like it being caught up in a bureaucracy or decisions of a bigger pie or, you know, we're going to make this decision and it's not right for you, but it's right for the overall organization. I, I've done that and it's just never seemed to fit with what I like. Mm -hmm. And so my personality throughout my whole life has basically been just trying to be my own boss. We'll get into your athletic career here in a bit, but as an athlete, were you difficult to coach because of that? Uh, yes, <laughs> a little bit. I was difficult to coach. Uh, I think I was difficult to coach in some ways because I was pretty smart, like, and smart, just more like I, whatever I do, I really want to know everything about it. So, you know, if it's, if I'm getting in running, I'm trying to learn everything possibly about running. And if I have someone who's supervising me that doesn't know as much as I do, or, or they know these things, but now those things, or I can ask a question and I don't get a good answer for it, then that would frustrate me. And that was probably one of the things why I really liked working with coach V Hill was he was one of those kind of first people I met that like hit me over the head with the amount of knowledge he had. And so he was that kind of guy of like, oh, okay, I want to be someone like him. Okay. Back to Mission AC. You brought some athletes with you when you moved to San Diego. How do you go about bringing an athlete onto the squad? Or what do you look for in an athlete when you're bringing someone onto the squad? Yeah. So it's, I mean, with this squad, it's a little bit different than with some of the other places I have. Because, you know, currently we have a, a group that works together. And, you know, I've got a couple favors in throughout, you know, like I work with uh, John Pierce, who owns this company called Kinetic, which is sports therapy and performance in, in, in a gym. So I have access to certain things like that where, OK, we've got gym use and whatnot for athletes, but I'm not someone who's signing contracts. So we're different in terms of like, you know, whether it's an organ project or Flagstaff Elite, where it's like, OK, hey, we have this amount of money we're going to give you. So. Most every athlete that's going to come join the team needs to either have a contract or have some sort of income to be able to live here. So that's kind of first and foremost. So that will kind of put it where it is. And so that becomes the jobs of the athletes and their managers of getting them a, a contract. Uh, we're trying to basically build it out as an Adidas group over time. And so with that in mind, we're being kind of Adidas centric you know, mm -hmm. in terms of that, but I do have athletes on the team that aren't under contract, but we get uh, gear and, and shoes and all that for them from Adidas. Uh, but still they have to figure out their financial side. So, so that's kind of the first thing we look at is can they afford to be here? Second thing is, you know, do they want to be here? Do they want San Diego to be a place? And then from my end as a coach, it's trying to figure out what is the goal of the athlete? So I've realized over time, as a coach, like I'm pretty elitist. So, and not elitist in a bad way, but elitist in like when you've coached the Dina Casters and the Ryan Halls and helped out with the Meb Kafleskis and my wife and, you know, many of those types of Olympians throughout, through my, throughout my career, it's like, there are certain things like I bring a skill set to an athlete that's only valuable if they've already had these other things lined up. They mm -hmm. already have their motivations sorted out, their desire and drive to be the best. And then I can fit those last pieces of the puzzle in. So the bar is already high. Right. So if, so if I, I'm not a great coach for someone who's like, oh, I don't know if I want to train today, you know, things like that. It's like, I don't know if I'm any good. Um, and not that every athlete doesn't go through those, but the innate drive to succeed is something I'm interested in, in working with that type of athlete. So I'm really not, that into working with, you know, athletes that don't have that or just kind of don't know where they are as an athlete in this spectrum. Mm -hmm. You know, like when I came out of college, like I was pretty good college runner, you know, all American whatnot, but it was like, there were certain boxes I just didn't have. Right. And so it was like, did I have, you know, certain abilities to be able to do that? Uh, and then, you know, was I in a coaching system that was going to help foster that, you know? I think with today we're looking at athletes look at things a little bit differently. And most of the athletes that are coming out of school is like, okay, well, what are you going to give me? So it's almost like if I 
have athletes who call up and like are looking for that. I'm like, eh, I don't know. That's just not my type. Probably of not athlete. a good fit. Yeah. When you're thinking about the group itself in terms of its size and then the spread of specialties that people are training for within that group, is there a certain way that you want to keep it? I mean, right now you've got a lot of call them like kind of 5k athletes who will go down to 1500, some 1500 that might move up to 5k. I don't think maybe aside from Jen, you have anyone who is really pure marathoner, like some of the groups in like Northern Arizona elite, they're mostly like marathon road race type thing. I'd love to understand how you think about the the group and who you're letting in from a specialty standpoint. Right. Yeah. So the way I kind of like to build things out is, you know, the first, first is like, that if I bring an athlete on, I do like to know that they have a training partner. So I'm not going to bring on, you know, male 800 meter runner that's sprint oriented if I feel like they're just going to be by themselves all the time. Because I just don't think that's very, you know, successful. So, you know, I'm going to kind of like gear it by, by the event for one from an athlete. Do they have a training partner or something? It doesn't even have to be that they're in the same event, but I can know at least you know, 30 to 50% of the training they can do with somebody else, you know, as a whole. So that would be the number one. Um, I don't really look at things in terms of male, female breakdown, um, you know, in terms of, oh, I'm going to only get women or only get men. Uh, it's more kind of by event, you know, number one, then are, do I see, you know, a new person we're trying to bring on, are they compatible with some people we already have. So are, do they work well with other athletes? What's that sort of background like? Uh, and then from me as a coach and just in terms of time management, it's like, do, you know, am I going to be able to, is it the best for each athlete if I have them all on the track at the same time? Right. So, you know, if I were to have a marathon or let's say, and it's just one marathon or two, but I have the other people on the track, I don't, want to make that decision to bring them on unless I know I can have the marathoners on their schedule and the track runners on their schedule and so on and so forth. So I would say now I have more track oriented people. Whereas like when I was in mammoth, I had a little bit of both, but the people that I had that were running 1500s and 800s could also run long runs and whatnot. So I felt like I could do it and not, didn't have anyone suffer because of it. So I usually kind of make those decisions. What's your favorite discipline to coach? I don't have one. I get, I've get i I've gotten asked that a lot. I like all of them. Uh, they all are like so unique. Um, you know, it's like trying to figure out, you know, an 800 and what the type of an 800 runner, you know, is to get what there is for successful is equally as satisfying to me as, you know, training someone for a marathon, you know, what, and the same for a 5k or 10k, you know, so I'm, I'm really, I like all of the events equally. It's really just getting the athlete in the right event is actually to me more exciting. How do you manage all the different personalities in a large group like you have? I mean, it's not really a large group, but it's still a lot of people and they're training for different things. They're coming from different backgrounds and they've all got to come together to work toward a common goal. Yeah. So obviously very important. And and so part of our, you know, almost like vetting process, as you would say, would be first, you know, kind of myself looking into a new athlete and what do I know about them? What can I find out through talking with them on the phone or email or whatnot, uh, talking with their coach. Then it's like having our athletes talk with them. What do you know about the kid? Do you have you, who have they trained with, not trained with, you know, maybe they come and visit. Did that seem to work out well? Um, so I'll start with that. Uh, and then I've done a fair amount of like kind of business management background work with like uh, personality profiling. So, you know, if I can kind of identify what type of profile this person is, you know, it'd be similar to like, you know, what like Myers-Briggs is, yeah. you know, so I used one that was called a disc profiling and it kind of broke people into, let's say, four types of categories. And so you can know from those things of like, what type of person were you putting into this group? And, you know, do I have too many of that type of person or does that type of person really clash with this other type that I have in this event? And if so, is this something we can get past or not? So I, I kind of look at it that way. Have you ever had instances where you've brought an athlete into the group and they just weren't a good match, whether it was for the group itself or with your coaching style? And how do you handle those types of situations? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've definitely had that pretty much wherever you go. I mean, most everything is taking risk, whether it's from the coaching side or from the athlete side. And I, 
I like to think I've done over the years a pretty good job of that because I've probably turned down a lot more people than I've brought on. Uh, strictly for the sense of like, if I kind of see what the person's like, where they're from, what they're used to and knowing what our situation is. And I'd be like, "Mm, I just don't really think this is going to be a good fit for this kid. You know, um, I want people to be happy is the number one thing. And so I have to look at it like that. Um, so I'm pretty upfront and, uh, you know, I, I don't really hold things back. So, um, I could be brutally honest at some points, but so I usually kind of start in that direction, uh, just to see where the kid is, because if I know if I can't be brutally honest with them right out front, then it's going to be a tough game late. And, and that's the nature of this sport. You know, it's like, I'll, I'll start with athletes and be like, okay, well, what do you want to do? You know, like I've had athletes in the past and be like, well, what do you want to do? Oh, well, I want to make the Olympic team. It's like, oh, okay. So now I'll know their history. I'm like, well, what have you done at the NC2A level? And it's like, oh, well, you know, I miss making nationals because something happened in my region. I'm like, all right, well, what did you do at your conference meet? You know, and so we go down this list and then I'll go backwards and say, well, what does it take to make an Olympic team? You know, and I'll ask certain questions like that. And if these athletes don't know any of those things, probability for success, success at that level is pretty low. So... You know, I'm like, do you really want to come here and have everything be, you know, against what that is? Because the reality hits you in the face over and over again. Um, Particularly when you're training with the type of athletes that I've had over the years where it's like, you know, you want to like be an Olympian. You want to beat, you know, a Dina Castor or something. And it's like, well, she's going to show you every day in practice. What it takes. And, And that's going to be depressing. So it's like, can you change your goals? If so, then, yeah, we could probably work together. Um, but if not, then we're, yeah, we're probably not the right place for you. And I think for me, coaching at a, I don't want to say lower level, because that isn't meant to demean my own athletes, but when you bring on a new athlete, it's understanding where they want to go and then where they are and how do you close that gap. And in your case, you're doing that at the ultimate level of the sport. You've got people who come to you and say, I want to be an Olympian. But as you said, they, they're like, oh, well, I didn't make the NCAAs. Like, some of that is just being brutally honest and being like, the reality of you getting there might not be so good. Uh, yeah. And I, and I'm, it's not to say that that's bad. You know, it's like, I never made it that, at that level, you know, but it's like my coach, like Matt Centrowitz coached me coming out of college and he was like, dude, you're just not fast. You know? So it's like, it was like 10 K. Yeah. I, I love the 10 K on the track. It's like, yeah, but you can't run under 60 for a last lap. So what are you going to do here? It's like, Oh, all right. Well, I like the marathon. I can grind it. It's like, okay, well, that's where we can, that's was my best probability for success. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the other part of it is taking someone in that situation being like, that doesn't mean you should give up hope, but let's just be realistic about what's, what's possible and maybe be open to changing directions a little bit. Yeah. So it's changing directions or changing the bar. Looking at group training in the U.S., when you started with Mammoth Track Club, it wasn't such a big thing. There weren't a ton of groups, and the ones that were were smaller. They weren't really well-funded. Mammoth Track Club was a different model in that you had athletes who had different sponsors, some different coaches in situations, and it's still going. It looks very different now than it did back when you were with it, but we've seen other groups pop up in Flagstaff. We've seen Nike fund a couple groups. BAA was a new group at the elite level when you took it on back in 2013. Just talk about that trend toward more groups developing. And if that's something you take a little bit of pride in as someone who helped start Mammoth Track Club and just what that means for the sport as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I don't take any credit for any of that stuff. I mean, I, I mean, I would give credit to, you know, the, the running USA group with Basil Honickman who started that out, you know, and bringing coach V Hill and Bob Larson on. I mean, it was a response to kind of where we were like when I was coming out of college is we were a sea of individuals, you know, you had few athletes training together, you know, very small groups, but if so, totally non-funded and non really not coach supported. Uh, and, and it just showed like we were really bad. You know, I mean, I was, uh, you know, in the, what was it? The nine, 96 trials or nine or 2000 when we only sent Rod to Haven to the Olympics mm-hmm. you know, for it goes so it was 2000. 2000. Yeah. And it was like, that was like the bottom of the bottom. You know, it's like, how can we not get any athletes running this fast? Uh, and that's when, you know, kind of the, 
then the Hansons started coming around, and I think Team Minnesota started maybe shortly after. And Zap our, Fitness, I uh, think, was kicking off around that time, well, maybe well, a little yeah, bit later. Yeah, I don't even know when they started, but I know they've been around a while. Um, and even like our group in Mammoth actually didn't start as a full-time group. When I was there, we started as a part-time group. We'd come together for like extended camps. Uh, but when I took it over, I was like, hey, yeah, okay, we've had success doing the extended camps, but we need to do it full-time. And so that's when we kind of put our heads down and said, okay, let's get after it. And then shortly after that, I think Alberto started their group up up in Oregon. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the nature of groups is good, but I don't think it's a cure-all. I mean, I've definitely had athletes who, you know, are just better training by themselves. You know, I think a good example would be like Ben True. You know, like Ben True first went to uh, what Oregon, uh, the Eugene group. And it was just like, Ben True's a loner type of athlete who thrives being by himself and pushing himself. So, you know, it's like for as good as the groups are, I don't think it's like we should be forcing everyone. It's into not groups for everyone. And, and I think we're kind of in that situation now where most of the shoe companies and different sponsors and, and let's say college coaches for kids coming out of school, it's like, yeah, well, I got to push a kid into a group. And I get that all the time. It's like, well, kids got, you know, all these kids are looking to find groups. And it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't be finding a group. Maybe you should just be doing your own thing. So I think we have to be a little bit careful, you know, because it's like, it's a great thing, but not for everybody. Do you think a lot of the brands are doing that because it's better for them from a marketing standpoint? I think it's, I mean, that is one answer for sure, because it's easy, right? I mean, if I you know, if we want to do an Adidas thing, it's like, all right, well, one Adidas person comes here and they can film a bunch of Adidas athletes and Nike, you know, you throw a stick and you can hit, you know, 30 different Olympians up there. And, and that's great. Uh, I think it's also a safety net. Uh, I mean, if I was a company, that would be something I would look at. It's like, so if I'm going to sign you, Mario, you're coming out of college, you're NC2A champ. And here's, you know, 90 grand for four years. It's like, you know, I kind of know, I want to know what's going on, right? Is there an overseer? Is there a manager? Is there something, you know, and managers aren't where athletes are. So it's like, if I could call up your manager and be like, Hey, how'd Mario do on the workout this week? It's like, I don't know, you know? Uh, so it's a little more of a protection of an investment. Cause I think we saw that, uh, probably more in the sprint world where there was a lot of money paid to a lot of athletes and it was kind of a loose cannon situation. And, you know, money they felt was like lost because these kids weren't being managed because they didn't have to show up at practice at 9 a.m. We'll get back to coaching here in a bit. I want to go back to your beginnings as a runner. What was your introduction to the sport? Uh, so I had, I'm from a family of 10. and so 10 I siblings. 10, 10, yeah. Eight boys, two girls. And so I had three older brothers and they all ran uh, high school, like cross country and track. And... I just started following them around a little bit, like started with like, oh, my brothers were running around the block, you know, in our neighborhood. So that was like half mile around. So I'm like tag along for a couple laps and hey, that was kind of fun. Uh, did a couple, uh, I think the first little thing I did was uh, doing a charity run where you run miles and you collect mo money from donors. I did that at my like elementary school and I was the top finisher at that. And that was, fun. that was also my introduction to the sport yeah. It was a walk for technology. Yeah. And something like that. You had yeah. to walk around the schoolyard and you had to get pledges for that. And somewhere in my mind, I was like, well, if I run for an hour, I can do more laps than everyone else yep. and raise more money. And that was, I didn't start running competitively for years after that, but that, that was sort of the spark for me. Yeah. So I did, yeah, I did that. It was the same thing as like do an hour. I think I got like a little over seven miles in it. And like you said, you had to get your check marks along the way. So that was really fun. And then, um, my dad's a car guy. And, um, so he happened to find like at one of his car things, it was, uh, in Long Beach, they used to have a Grand Prix car race. And in that Grand Prix car race weekend, they had a 10 K. So my dad happened to bring the flyer home and I saw a 10 K. I'm like, and I was always in race cars. He's like, what? I'm like, what's that? He's like, oh, well, it's this 10K going along during the Long Beach Grand Prix weekend. I'm like, oh, okay, can I run that? So my dad's like, what are you, like 12 years old? All right. You know, and so he just thought nothing of it, but he drove me there uh, and I ran the race and I won my age group and I won uh, tickets and pit passes. And that just got me hooked. And then from then on, it was just finding every road race I could that had little prizes. Was it the winning of the race or just the act of competition that fueled you? What was it that uh, lit the spark? Yeah, definitely the competition, you know, because I also played soccer and baseball 
And I mean, it's one of the things I love about running and, and it goes back to just my kind of coaching style was, you know, you ran at the end of the day, you knew how you did. And I remember playing baseball and I was like pretty good baseball player and made the all-star team. And, but I hated losing when it wasn't my fault or just, you know, it's like, ah, just the other team kicked our butt, but I had a good game. I, I just was never really like happy with those situations. And so running was just more that cut and dry. You did well, you got, you know, you placed first or second or third or whatever it was, or you replaced eighth and then you, you know, you got to get better for the next time. So I'm, I would definitely say it just, it ticked my really competitive box. When did you give up the other sports? So I gave up, let's see, seventh grade, I think seventh grade, I stopped playing baseball and was pretty much running focused. I do other sports for fun, but I didn't compete in them. You know, I stopped playing little league in seventh grade. I played like a year of soccer in high school just cause I was getting bored a little bit. Uh, but I always was active in other sports, but in terms of just pure competitiveness, it was just, it was running from about seventh grade on. Hey, let's take a quick break so I can thank our sponsor for this episode. It is my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is an independent running brand based in Boston, not far from where I grew up. They're a group of dedicated runners whose focus is on building technical yet understated running apparel that celebrates the amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. Their products, which reflect their New England roots, are designed for a specific running function and solve problems that are unique to the experience of training and racing, whether that's building the perfect pair of half tights for speed workouts or split shorts that are just the right weight and with the right number of pockets to race a marathon. And unlike other brands in the industry, Tracksmith's model is direct-to-consumer, which enables them to scour the earth for the most technical materials to meet a specific performance intent without having to compromise to make wholesale margins. Look, this stuff is great. I wore the Twilight Tank and the Reggie Half Tights when I set my marathon personal best at CIM last fall. It's also the same kit I've worn for my last several races. And I rock Tracksmith gear all the time in training, particularly the Session Short and the Twilight Short Sleeve now that it's springtime. It fits and it functions well and has a timeless look to it that I admire and appreciate. Right now, Tracksmith is running a special offer for new customers. Spend $150 and you will earn their signature Navy Van Cortland singlet for free. You can learn more at tracksmith.com slash Mario, that's my name, and follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning for more updates and inspiration. My thanks to Tracksmith for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. A lot of folks, when they get to the end of high school, if they weren't recruited to college, they stop. Uh, maybe they'll get back to the sport later on in life, but they go on to college and they get involved in other things. When did you know that you wanted to continue running after high school? Um, well, I definitely, I mean, my high school was all about thinking about running in college. It was a pretty competitive program. Yes. Yeah. So we had a good program. So I was, you know, heck I was on my height when I went into high school as a freshman, you know, I'd ran like five minutes in the mile in like seventh grade or eighth grade, eighth grade, whatever that was. But I came onto our high school team and fortunately they were good. And I was the only like fourth, fifth guy. And so I kind of worked my way through, you know, it took me until my junior year, I think, till I was the number one guy. Uh, so that it was a very competitive group, but we were like that group that trained all summer together. And we had some elder siblings who had graduated who would run with us. And so that kind of sparked going. And then, uh, one of the kids that was just older than me, he, he, uh, went to Stanford and ran and another one uh, who was older than me and better when I was in high school, uh, went to UC Riverside on a partial scholarship. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. You know? And then this was at the time of, uh, Pat Porter would come down and run at Mount Sac and I'd love, you know, I, I grew up in Orange County, so I'd go watch him. You know, I just wanted to be the Panther, you know? So it's like Pat Porter, Alberto. So it's like, okay, where'd Pat Porter go to school? Oh, Adam state. So I, I messaged Adam <laughs> State, right? Where'd Alberta go? Oregon. So I messaged Oregon and I ended up going to Oregon first. And you eventually left Oregon and went to Villanova. But what was the initial, not the initial draw to Oregon, but what made you decide that was where you wanted to matriculate to collegiately? So out of high school, I, you know, I basically, because I was kind of a running geek, I, I knew all the good running schools. And so Villanova was one of those. And my parents are originally from Pennsylvania. So that was a big spark. And I knew about Eamon Coughlin and Marcus O'Sullivan and all those guys. So that was on my list. Um, at the time when, 
whoever the coach was then, like they weren't even recruiting distance runners. So I, you know, applied and did all that stuff, but I got really no feedback from the athletic program. So that just got pushed to the side. Uh, and then it was like Oregon and Adam state and those places. And I'm like, well, you know, Alberto pre whatnot. I mean, okay. If I'm not going to go East, which I thought was the other best school with Villanova, then I'll go West and, and go to Oregon. And so that kind of, yeah, just fueled that kind of concept of continuing to be in the best running situation as possible. And when you got to Oregon, what were your initial impressions once you got to meet the team and started practicing and jumping in races? Yeah, that I was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was so overwhelming. It was like, you know, you go from, you know, a high school situation where, yeah, I was like fifth fifth kid when I was a freshman on the varsity team and you work your way up and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of the shit, you know? Uh, and then I go... I go up to Oregon and it was like the first thing we did was uh, Coach Dillinger did this kind of secret time trial workout, so to speak. And it's like this gets determined who goes to camp. And, uh, you know, I was the last qualifier in to get like make it to go to camp. And so, you know, every workout we did, it was like the A group and the B group and the C group. And I'm in the C group, you know, and I'm the C group on the intervals and the C group on the tempo. And it was just then wait a minute, that's Alberto. And he just showed up to practice. And then, um, Art Boilo, the comedian marathoner and, and Don Clary and all that. So it was like the whole history was in front of me, but looking at that every day, they're all better than me. So immediately it was like, well, you put up or shut up. And so, you know, I started running, like I came from a high school program running 40 or 50 miles a week. And I was running probably 85 my freshman year. And as soon as freshman season ended, I started running a hundred miles a week and then it was just put my head down and go. So you were motivated by that situation. It didn't crush your spirit. No. Yeah. I mean, it was, and that's one of those things I look at with athletes. It's like, how do they handle that sort of adversity? Right. So are you adaptable to the situation? And then it, it's always the gut check. And I'll, I'll say this to the athletes. I go, well, what do you really want? Right. And I want to make a team or do this. It's like, okay. And then you put them in an adversity and then you ask that question again, what do you really want? Is this what you want? Is this what you want? And so that was a lot of self-reflection on my end. You know, I lost, man, I lost like 15, 20 pounds my freshman year, uh, just training and, you know, now eating right and all those types of things. But it was just constantly in my head, like, okay, well, that's Alberto. I want to be where Alberto is, or that's Brad Hudson, or that's whoever, you know, mm -hmm. and it was always just trying to take a step better each day. And so I was, I guess I'm fortunate in that I didn't get discouraged, that I just was motivated by not being where I wanted to. But it was just, to me, it's, these things are like just looking in a mirror every day. How long did you stay at Oregon? Stayed at Oregon for two years. And what was the impetus to leave? So when I went to Oregon, I was a walk-on. Uh, I had an academic scholarship to go there. Uh, so I went there, academic scholarship for the first year and a quarter. And then uh, my second, so I registered my first year. Second year, ran cross country, was the fourth guy on the team. And we were second at NC2As uh, to Iowa State. And then after that, I got put on a scholarship. But because I was a walk-on, I didn't have any letter of intent or anything. It was just like they gave me half a scholarship. Uh, then they got into a financial situation the end of my year, that second year, where they committed money to some kids who they thought were going to get financial aid. Uh, and so that financial aid fell through, but they still had to honor that commitment. And so they had to start taking money away from people who didn't such as yourself didn't have it. And it was myself and a couple other people. And at that point in time, I was like, okay, well, I'm good enough to get a scholarship somewhere. I'm one of 10 kids. I got a brother who's going to college, you know, in, in the next year after me or two years later, and then a sister and then another brother. And it was like, so I had to look at that financially for my family because I wasn't working. Uh, and I didn't really want my dad to pay when I could earn it. And so I just said, Hey, let me take a peek around. And, you know, after a couple of phone calls, it was like, Oh, I can get a full scholarship to Villanova. So I'm like there, that was my other choice anyway. So I'm gone. Who was the coach at Villanova when you transferred? Uh, so Marty Stern, who was the women's coach had just that first year taken over the, the, both the men's and women's program. And so the coach prior to him, like hadn't filled all the scholarships. So I was fortunate enough that I'm calling him up in like mid July and he's like, Hey, I happen to have a couple scholarships. Come take a visit. You hit it right. Yeah. It was just, it was good timing. What was the difference in culture from Oregon to Villanova? So totally different. I mean, Villanova, 
very middle distance oriented, you know, so you, you know, highlights of there is, you know, indoor season and pen relays and running relay. So 800, 1500 runners, but they didn't really have much of a cross country program at all. So I did kind of fill that niche for them of being a cross, uh, a distance guy in their middle distance world. But I instantly was like realizing, okay, now I'm just, I have to be more self-motivated because there was no one out there to push me. So I, I got lucky in terms of when I was there, a lot of the post-collegiates were still around. So even though I didn't really have a lot of teammates that were running at that high level on the endurance, you know, 5K, 10K side, I did have guys like Marcus O'Sullivan and Jerry O'Reilly and I mean, even Sidney Marie was around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually trained with a lot of those guys during, you know, weekends and summers. So you knew even before Matt Centrowitz told you that you had no speed, that you were a distance guy. Yeah, I had when I was at Oregon, it's like I was like running, I, you know, I was like leading pack tens, leading a bunch of races. And with a lap to go, I'd get blown away, blown away five or six seconds in the last lap. And I even happened in high school a couple of times, you know, and my dad used to joke. He's like, you got to get out in front. You got to get out in front. And uh, yeah, just that reality of just not being fast. I mean, I didn't break two minutes until, uh, uh, a goofy race that Andrew Castor and a couple of us did in the summer when I was done running. So I <laughs> like my best quarter was like 54, you know, like in a workout one time, but yeah, yeah you were slow. I'm not fast, but I could run a long time. Who were your own personal running heroes at that point in your life uh, as a collegiate athlete? And so, yeah, I mean, so as I was going into college, Alberta was obviously a big one, um, you know, and I, I started to then learn, you know, about like I was because I'm West Coast, I knew more about him than I did like the Frank Shorters and the Bill Rogers of, of the world and the Greg Myers types, um, you know, probably in college. Then I started getting into like guys like Mark Ninao. Um, Pat Porter was was kind of still a big one. I, I really like Ninao's style. Um Probably and, the most unheralded American distance oh runner God. of all so time. So many people don't know who he is. And we we got to watch a workout of his one time. And just I thought it was just total stud. Steve Placentia, who mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know. Uh, Placentia was probably one of the guys I really admired of, of a self-coach guy. Because he just, he was one of the most objective athletes I've ever met. Just enabled to coach himself, get the most out of himself, execute a race plan, you know, and just be able to carry that on and have a great career that way. So Plaz, you know, was, was a really good guy. Uh, and then as I got East, uh, you know, meeting Marcus was a big one and, and Marcus O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan and just like kind of the methodology that Marcus put together and, and understood, you know, from his working with so many great athletes, you know, that, that he trained with and, and understanding who he was as compared to who they were, you know, Marcus would tell a lot of stories of just getting manhandled by Sydney Marie, you know, in training and just being like, I just can't do this, you know, and, and realizing like, I don't need to do this to be better than what I was mm-hmm. yesterday. Looking back, when did you first become a student of the sport? Um, ah, man, I mean, almost always like in high school, I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of like good coaches. So, you know, in high school, I used to train with this coach in the summer named Dave Shirley. And he was the one who started teaching me like drills and strength training. And it was like, Oh, well, runners don't do that stuff. And I got into that and then Hill repeats and then, you know, and then going to Oregon and you learn a couple other different, you know, we started learning some nutrition and, you know, what's the purpose of these different VO2 workouts. And then, uh, when I went to Villanova, because I didn't have a lot of like, like really top distance guys, like I did at Oregon and coach Marty was much more middle distance. I actually had to become more self-reliant and I started suggesting workouts to him. For yourself. Yeah. Hey, this is what I've done before. This is what I've been reading. Uh, I got, I mean, I'm probably one of the few like young kids who got uh, Dave Martin's book with uh, Seb Coe's dad. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to read about Krebs cycles and ATP and, you know, uh, a lot of the chemistry. So definitely, you know, uh, a lot in college and then immediately post-collegiately, I just started learning a ton. And post-collegiately, did you start getting coached by Matt Centrowitz right away or were you on your own for a little uh, while or what did that look yeah, like? Yeah, so pretty much I talked to Gags at, after NC2A's in the track, I think what was in New Orleans and Gags was just starting the group with the Enclave. He'd started kind of half a year before with a couple of those guys. And he's like, hey, yeah, we're going to try to get it bigger. And, you know, do you want to come down and 
Matt Cernford is going to coach. This was in DC at the time. Yeah, Georgetown University. It's like the Reebok enclave. Exactly. Yeah, we weren't Reebok for maybe that came a year later. Eventually, yeah. So everyone was just kind of on your on your own, but it was a collection of people. And Gags took the middle distance guys, and Centro took the distance guys, and we just got it rolling. And when did you first realize that you wanted to coach yourself someday? Um. I think I've always been kind of put in the situation where people are always asking me advice. Mm. Uh, maybe that's because I just openly talk or, or like say, Hey, this is what I think about you or whatever. Uh, so I was doing that a bit while I was in the enclave, you know, and helping coach like, so at one point in time I was living in Philly, training in DC, kind of doing a back and forth situation. So I'd have some kids that were, you know, I'd work at the local running store and some of the kids there running, I'm like, Hey, well, this is what I would suggest for you. You're getting ready for a 5k and kind of started like that. And then took, went full on when I joined running USA with V Hill. Cause V Hill was just basically like, he, he, he was one of the few guys that called me Terry and he'd say, Terry, get in the car. We're going to coffee. And then we'd go have a cup of coffee and he'd just start reciting training to me like physiology and methodology and, and so on and so forth. And he even like, you know, maybe it was just because he didn't know, he didn't think I was going to be a very good runner or something. He was like, hey, you know, you'd be a good coach. Maybe you should look into this program. Uh, and I was still running, so I didn't do that. But basically uh, that year uh, uh, for 2004 going into Athens, you know, with Jen and Dean and Mevin, you know, he was kind of like, hey, I'm sitting this out once this is over. He's like, do you want to take over? And so that kind of just was like, all right, well, you're not getting a better opportunity than this. So if you want to be a coach, now you got to be it for real. And you were done competing yourself by that time? Yes. I had qualified for the trials in 2004 or whatever, 2003, but I kind of knew it wasn't going anywhere. I was battling a couple injuries and it's like, so I didn't do the marathon and I was like looking at the track and I had a time, but I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. So I just said, no, I'll just be there and support my wife. And, uh, so yeah, I was pretty much done in terms of thinking as a, as that, like my career more, you know, I've always ran and competed and did workouts, but I just knew I wasn't going to be a pro anymore. Did coach V Hill ever coach you? Yes. Yeah, so he coached, coached me when we were, um, with the running USA group. So tail end of your career. Yeah, so like last two years of my career. And what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned from coach V Hill while you were still an athlete under him? Uh, I wish I would been with him about eight years beforehand. Uh, um, that was probably the number one thing. I was like, man, I, I one was because his, his training is extremely hard and, I was now knowledgeable enough of the adaptation time that's needed. And now, you know, it's like, as you look at it, you're like, well, yeah, Dina was under coach for a couple of years before, like it clicked, you know? And so you just knew it was like, you had to go through those, that process. And so Hill was kind of like a, you know, Peter Cove was like, Hey, this is a, an eight, 10 year plan, you know? So this is the model. And, you know, yeah, I was unfortunate. It's like, okay, well, it's, I don't have, eight more years to go. So I knew that once I went in, but now as I understood, I, he gave me the kind of whys, you know, why is this going to take this long to develop? Mm -hmm. And, and so that was that sort of scenario where he started to cement, cement the foundations of like how you, how you build out an athlete. So you were working, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Bryn Mawr running company. Yeah, Bryn Mawr running company. Yep. And I think I'd read this somewhere. Maybe someone told me you were coaching, I mean, you just said how oh, you're coaching some younger, younger folks, but were you coaching like moms and like average people that you would meet through the store? So the running club, we had a, we had a pretty avid like running community. And so with the running club, the guy who owned it, Bob Schwelm would basically have Tuesday night track workouts. And so at one point he was just thinking, oh, it's going to be fun. Everyone shows up at the track and we'll give them something to do. And then, you know, a hundred people show up and he's like, uh, I'm running a store. And so he's like, Terrence, do you want to like put something together? So yeah, I started putting together programs and it was like, well, what are we training for? It's like, all right, these 30 over here are 5k and this group's trying to run the Philly half. And then this group's trying to qualify for Boston. And so, yeah, so I, I kind of started, you know, in terms of mass coaching. So yeah, I've coached, you know, four or five hour marathoners and, you know, 25 minute 10 K runners. So I do have a, a fair amount of experience coaching the masses, mm -hmm. uh, and people who, whose goal is yet yeah, to qualify for Boston or, or, you know, I coached a guy who just want, he was a, a top crew rower and, uh, his whole thing was he just wanted to win the crew 5k because it was a bragging rights thing. I'm like, all right, I'll coach you. And, and so that was kind of fun. How formative were those years for you looking back? Uh, 
it was formative, I think, in terms of understanding people, right? So you understand what makes them tick. Why do they go out and do these things? Uh, you know, what's the motivations? You know, I thought that was super interesting to me was like you take someone who's working 40, 50 hours a week and they show up at the track and they're like tired and not, you know, overly much. Like they don't need to do this. And then they do a track workout and then they're pissed off because they didn't hit a time. And you're like, man, like this is really interesting. You know, I was like, this guy's really upset that he didn't hit his quarters or half miles or whatever. And you're like, but their life doesn't depend on this, you know? So that was, it was just a window into why people do what they do. You know, what, what's the passion and, and kind of reasoning behind it. You know, I'd have athletes who'd be like, you know, okay, well I can't make the workout, but I got, I'm going to go tomorrow at five 30 in the morning. And, you know, you try to get a pro athlete out and work out at 5.30 in the morning, right? Before nine, it's impossible. Yeah. And it's like, man, I mean, this is just, it's that important to, to these people. So I think you start to understand, you know, what running can mean to people, you know, as a whole. Uh, and then what, you know, problem solving skills there are for people. If there's a will, there's a way, you know, and I think Jen was a big one for me with that. Uh, when she first came out of college, she signed with Reebok and Reebok was pretty big. Um, and you know, these contracts have a lot of weird things in them. And one of hers was in there. It was like, she, if, if she didn't run six golden league events, something like that, then she could either be reduced or cut or whatever. And happened to be Reebok was going through hard financial times. And it was like, she got on the chopping block at the end of her first year, no more contract. And it was like, they got rid of her and Olympic gold medalist in the foreign hurdle. It was just like, just cleaned house. And Jen's like, Oh shit. And then she's like, well, guess I got to get a job. And so she got a job working for Vanguard financial. And, uh, I just remember being at the track with her either seven in the morning or seven at night, you know, with a flashlight, like looking at times. Cause she just didn't want to give it up. Since we're on the topic of your wife, Jen Rines, three-time Olympian, for those of you out there unfamiliar with her, when did you start coaching her? So I started coaching Jen basically uh, when we went to Mammoth. So not until 2005. So it was a few years so, later. Yeah, Matt Centrowitz coached her through 2004, and it was kind of our deal all along that I would never coach her, just me and her. Uh, and so Matt always kind of held the reins when we lived out in Philly and would go down to DC and, you know, I'd help out and, and do th different things here and there, or, or maybe make some suggestions, but Matt always drove the bus because I just didn't think our relationship didn't work in that husband, wife, coach situation. So we were like, I would only coach her within a group setting. And so when, when we went to Mammoth that, and I'm coaching Dina and, you know, eventually the other people, other women then it's men. like, okay, well. I've always coached her just as another athlete in the group. Did that present any challenges in your relationship? Um, not as long as we kept it like that. Okay. Um, so, you know, people always talk about, oh, well, you know, when are you a husband? When are you a coach and whatnot? And so the only times it ever presented itself poorly was when I actually would not be my normal self, which was to be brutally honest. And I'd put my like husband hat on like, Oh honey, it's okay. It wasn't a bad race. And that, and then I all of a sudden switch and be like, okay, well it actually was a bad race because you did do, and that would be confusing to her. Mm -hmm. So as long as I pick a line in the sand and like stick to it, then she understood the consistency of it. Uh, and so mainly as long as I, you know, know when I'm being a coach and know when I'm being a husband, we, we've had very few problems. Aside from Coach Vihill, who were some of your other influences and or mentors? So a lot of my influences like then go outside of the distance world. So uh, like Dan Path, like so I, I met Dan back in Osaka World Champs and had been studying him beforehand. And then he did a stint here at the Olympic Training Center and he was also up in Northern California. And Dan and I became huge friends uh, and he's again, another one of the, probably the smartest human beings I've met in track and field. And so with him, I just started learning a whole new type of methodology in relation to running mechanics and the different energy systems that maybe distance. Well, I know most distance runners don't pay attention to, but can be quite relevant. So he got me down that path. Uh, and you know, so I went down mechanics and drills and whatnot. And then through a friend I met, um, uh, strength and conditioning guy. I know the super smart named Dennis Klein, who then did kind of everything for me in the gym. And he connected the dots of what Dan did with running mechanics. He did with gym mechanics and how that connected to movement. 
and energy system and how you have to look at the gym just like you do with your running training. So I've had a couple guys like that. Uh, I had a business consultant out in Pennsylvania who connected the dots on like the personality profiling and how do you manage people and, and goals and understanding that that side of it. So kind of I've always tried to find those really smart people uh, in these different areas of expertise. And, you know, I have another guy, a guy named Hamish Hurley, who then connected all of these dots nutritionally that I had never thought of before. And so, you know, yeah, it's like once I find kind of that guru, then it's like I, I'm looking for like-minded people in these other facets. What do you do now to keep sharp and stay excited as a coach? I listen to way too many podcasts. Uh, number one, I'm always kind of reading and always listening and just trying to pay attention. And, you know, I never feel like I've figured it out. And so I think that keeps that hunger alive of like, you know, what, you know, how can I do this a little bit better? What if I tweak this thing? What does that do? So I'm always paying attention that way. I mean, each athlete's a puzzle, right? And it's like, so my main thing is, and, you know, we easily get into habits of trying to compare an athlete you're coaching now to one you coached before. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're like, oh, well, you're just like so-and-so. So you just give them the same thing. And I think that's a mistake. I think you can give them some of the same things or maybe 80% of them is exactly the same as that person. But then this other 20% is totally different. So how, you know, am I leaving that untouched if I don't pay attention to that? So it's like, you know, you really have to start to learn who these people are, what makes them tick, what are the things that motivate them demotivate them. Uh, and if I find like I'm, I'm stuck where I'm, I'm in a block, then I'm going to go dig my head in the, into Google or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, what can I find out? What, what do I not know? I've got these five guys who I'm emailing and say, Hey, here's my athlete problem. What do you think? And then that may give me other areas to then start researching. So I've got a group that like, it's this constant onslaught of like research articles that just go rolling through. Mm -hmm. Going back to when you were under Coach V Hill and he said, Hey, I'm gonna step away next year. I want you to take over the group. I imagine that was an exciting moment for you, but were you do you have a moment of panic at all? Being like, <laughs> I'm gonna take on these world class athletes who are trying to make Olympic teams and win medals and be the best in the world. And I'm sort of diving into the deep end here. Yeah, it was definitely a, you know, put up or shut up moment for sure. Uh, and fortunately, I mean, V Hill kind of did that, you know, he's like, yeah, do you want to take it over? Cause this is where it is. And basically it was like the first call I made was like to Dina, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, this is what coach V Hill's thinking. I know what you and Andrew have been doing and whatnot. It's like, he would like me to kind of take over or like, or, well, number one, like, are you okay with this? You know, is this what you, so then Dina and Andrew and I sat down and kind of talked through it. And, and for me, it was like, I needed that athlete buy-in and comfortability with it. And we've had, we had a really strong relationship prior to that. And I would help her with little things here and there, just because when she started into the marathon, like I had already been a marathoner. So I was giving her tips along the way. Uh, so it did start with, you know, okay, are we all cool, you know, and with Meb and what was he going to do? And he's still working with Larson, but I'm going to help with a couple of other things that he hasn't been doing. Uh, and then it was like, yeah, then you get, you know, then the, you know, January one of, of 2005 and you have your, you know, Oh shit moment. Like, all right, we got to get after this. Cause Dina now wants to run this eight K in Chicago and, you know, chase a world record or something. And I'm like, well, okay, all right, here we go. Uh, so yeah, there, there was a bit of panic, you know, uh, but a lot of those foundational pieces had been already laid down. Yeah, for sure. So it was really, I mean, listen, it's like, I, you know, I never invented the wheel and I mean, V Hill didn't invent the wheels. Like we're always building on top of other people. So then you're just asking questions and looking at things from different objectives, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, okay, well, here's all the things you've been doing with V Hill, let's say, you know, are there things we want to tweak a little bit and, and then experiment and see what that does. So it was, it was mostly that, right. And then we start to piece those pieces together with different athletes. You've had a number of athletes make Olympic teams, win global medals under your guidance. What do you learn from them? I mean, you learn from athletes every day, you know, uh, I mean, just, phenomenal things, you know, like obviously overcoming adversity is, is huge. You know, probably the funniest, it's like, you have so many, like when we watch athletics as a whole, right? Like you watch, uh, Elliot Kipchoge run Berlin or, or, you know, the Dinas and the Ryans or Mebs. It's like, it's like, as a coach, you know, the behind the scenes stuff. 
and you know like what was happening two weeks before, three weeks before, four weeks before. Uh, and that's the funniest part of it where you're like, man, I just, there's no way I thought this was going to happen. You know, like when Ryan ran the Olympic trials for the first time in the marathon in Central Park and everyone's, oh, he ran 61 last half and da da. You know, and the funny part is that it's like nine weeks before he couldn't run, you know? I mean, we, the last eight weeks of that program were so different than anything we've ever done before to try to get him ready because it was just total panic and total mayhem and he's not going to do it and this is four years wasted and, you know, and then you're, you're putting band-aids on and doing all these kinds of things. And then you, you know, you get to that two or three weeks out and like, man, I think we're going to do it, you know? And then watching from an athlete perspective where all of a sudden he gets it or she gets it. And then you see that just click. And then it's like game time, you know, I think that's the biggest thing I get from an athlete is like learning, you know, all these things you see as a coach, right? Like, this athlete should be able to do this or they should be able to hit these times or, or do this performance, but it's all nothing because it's just you or me talking here and we know the science of it and the method, but the athlete's the one who has to believe into it and believe in themselves. Right. And it's, it doesn't matter how much you tell them how great they are or whatever until they get it. And I think watching that process happen and how it happens differently with each athlete is, is probably the most exciting part of coaching. What do you view as your main responsibility as a coach? uh, not screwing them up, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Number one, it's like giving, giving athletes like insights into obviously when you're, you know, when you're a new coach, you don't know anything, right? You're, you're like, you think you got the greatest program ever. No one's ever done what you've have and you got all the secrets, right? That's like, you need that hubris as a new coach to be any good, you know? And as an older coach, you need to use, you know, rely on all the experiences you've had of the things that didn't go well. Right. And say, okay, how do I shortcut these, these things? And then how do I tell an athlete who now you've had this 1500 athlete and I've had five other 1500 athletes. And now I see the path this kid's going down and, you know, to like pull them, you know, by the shirt and be like, you know, dude, you're screwing this up. We cannot do this. This is where this is going to go. And have having the courage to do that, you know, having the experience to do it and know, you know, and then getting that athlete to really understand it's like that, you know, what you're talking about. And, and, you know, all you need is, you, you know, you get one of those saves and then, you know, the athlete really sees it. And then there's that buy-in. Put you on the spot a little bit. What's your proudest moment as a coach? Mm. You know, I, again, don't have one. I mean, it's like you have so many moments, but I'm the kind of person who it's like, we have a moment and it's really cool for that day. And then I just hit the erase and go on to the next one. So, I mean, yeah, it's like, you could say, oh, you know, Dina breaking 220 was awesome. And, you know, that was a great journey and adventure. And I thought it was, you know, was really cool. Uh, you know, Jen making the Olympic team in the five was really awesome and cool and making the final and, and those things and what Ryan did and Amy and, you know, Morgan Euseni and Anna Willard, you know, it's like, but they're all so good and unique in their own way that like, I, I don't think you can compare things like that. And I can't definitely rate one higher than the other. Two more questions before we wrap up. How have you grown the most as a coach since you started way back when? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm still annoying and, and ordery and, and, uh, I'm, you know, I've definitely, I don't know for better or worse. It's like, I've, I'm, as I get older and know more, I'm, sometimes more of a perfectionist and I definitely, I guess I'm now I'm more self-reflective and I can dial it back a little bit when I'm like, okay, this isn't the time for this. So I guess, uh, my ability to see who, who I am and what I'm doing right now has gotten a bit better. Uh, whereas before it was just like hit it, hit it with a bulldozer and, and then deal with the pieces afterwards. Now I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, well, I know where this kid needs to go, but we're not ready yet. So I just, don't even hit them, you know, just let's wait and then toss it out next year or next season. I'd read an old interview with you. I think it was from 2011 track and field news. And you said, my ultimate goal is coaching mastery. And I'd love to understand what you mean by coaching mastery. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's the journey for me, right. Is, is, you know, each day I get up trying to figure out another piece of the puzzle, right. That's my like thing. It's like, okay, can can I figure out more, you know, more and more pieces of the puzzle so that I can have zero mistakes. Right. And I mean, that's, it's a flawed notion and I understand and know that, but it's, it doesn't mean I don't want to pursue it. 
you know? Um, so if I take a look at, you know, and I'm not trying to be reductionist here in terms of like, what are all these different pieces of the puzzle of coaching, right? Of coaching athletes and, and, you know, the athletic side of it and the motivation side of it and, and the psychology and the work and the nutrition. And, you know, you, we have so many different factors at play of like what makes or breaks an athlete and what determines success or failure. And sometimes failure is bad, you know, but a lot of times failure is good because it leads to, you know, further growth. And so for me, it's just being able to like have this constant intellectual pursuit so that I have a better understanding of what's happening today in terms of the bigger picture. I lied. I have one more question. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) What do you hope is your lasting contribution on the coaching profession? Um, none. I, I, you know, I don't have that sort of like motivation. And so I never even think like that. Uh, I mean, you could forget me tomorrow. I don't care. It, it doesn't matter to me. And, and for me, it's like, I'm, I'm working on one-on-one relationships with individual athletes And I think that's the most important thing with me, whether there's a long-term contribution, you know, I'm sure there is. I just don't want my name attached to it because I just think that's silly. Well, it's kind of a subjective thing anyway, right? Yeah. I just, I, I, my, I don't have an ego that works that way that I want to label a name. I mean, it's like, there's a reason I don't call it the Terrence Mahan track club, right? It's like, that's not my thing. It's like, not about me. It's, It's always about the craft and the sport and the athletes. Terrence, this was super fun. Thank you so much for stopping by. Cool. Thanks, Mario. All right. Another episode in the books. We did it. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you enjoyed the show. If you're a fan, or heck, even if you're not, if you would go to the podcast app that you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review, it would really mean a lot to me. That helps new listeners to discover the show, and it's the easiest way to show your support. Big thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is an independent running brand based in Boston that was founded by a dedicated group of runners whose focus is on building technical yet understated running apparel that celebrates our sport's amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. I wore their Twilight Tank and the Reggie Half Tight when I set my marathon personal best at CIM last fall. It's actually the same kit I've worn for my last several races, and I rock Tracksmith gear all the time in training, particularly the Session Short and the Twilight Short Sleeve this time of year functions and it fits well it has a timeless look to it that i appreciate and admire and i think you will too right now tracksmith is running a special offer for new customers spend 150 dollars and you'll earn their signature navy van Cortland singlet for free you can learn more at tracksmith.com mario that's my name and follow them on instagram at tracksmith running for continued inspiration and more updates i'd also like to thank my man john summerford of bearsrecords.com takes care of all my audio needs for this show including the music which he produced himself and he's a big part of my small team here at the morning shakeout last thing if you're digging the podcast i encourage you to sign up for my newsletter it's also called the morning shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that i've been thinking about reading and listening to that i think you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every tuesday morning Okay, that's it for this week. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>